As a partner at the premier venture capital firm, Kleiner, Perkins, Caulfield, and Byers, Eric Fang focuses on consumer internet investments and incubations. Before joining KPCB, Eric was the founding chief technology officer and head of product at Hulu. Under Eric's leadership, in 2008 alone, Hulu was recognized as the Associated Press Website of the Year, the PC World Best Product, and made the Time Magazine list of best inventions. Apart from his stunning success at Hulu, Eric has also served as Chief of Staff to Vice President Al Gore and as CTO at Flipboard, the personal magazine application for mobile devices. At Flipboard, Eric led the global engineering team, as well as strategic partnerships and company strategy, including financings and mergers and acquisitions. At Kleiner, we have a very specific question that we ask, which is, is this entrepreneur a missionary entrepreneur or a mercenary entrepreneur? And both can build great businesses, but we really want to back missionary entrepreneurs and not mercenary entrepreneurs. And we define that as someone that's pursuing an idea or a passion or a mission that's greater than themselves, that's greater than their own personal interests. Eric sat down with Ivy's co-founder, Barry Merrick, and discussed the role of a venture capitalist beyond mere monetary investment. They also delved into what makes a great entrepreneur and what investors look for in both a company and team. Please enjoy our conversation with Eric Fang. You're listening to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us at membership at ivy.com. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Um, You've got a fascinating background and you are at the intersection of some of the most interesting uh, technologies going on. You focus on consumer, you focus on media, and you're at one of the most distinguished uh, venture capital firms in the world. So before we get started, I'd love to just start with like, how did you get into this world in the first place? What was it like growing up and how did you make the connection into getting into venture capital? Happy to share that, Barry. And uh, thank you, first off, for having me uh, today. It's just a real pleasure to be able to chat with you and also the amazing members of the Ivy community. Uh, It's going to hopefully be fun and entertaining over the next hour. Uh, So my background has always been in technology and engineering. I am a trained computer programmer, um, and I've been programming all of my professional career. And um, I first started uh, at a small software company in Austin, Texas called Trilogy Software, where I learned a lot about uh, entrepreneurship because uh, Trilogy, they had this program called Trilogy University where the new hires would join Trilogy and be taught about um, how to spin up 
uh, new companies, how to take your idea and take it to a, a product, into a, a working prototype, into a business. And Trilogy University actually spun out a number of very successful companies. They spun out a company called PC Order, which they took public. So um, it was a real uh, exciting learning opportunity to be there. And while I was at Trilogy, I got to, uh, to create a company, which we spun out. It was called Uberworks, and we sold that to a publicly traded company up in Seattle. And that was my first taste of entrepreneurship. And um, uh, from that moment on, I've really always wanted to pursue that passion. The thing I love about entrepreneurship is that it is such a pure meritocracy. You get in, uh, uh, I'm sorry, you get out of the experience exactly what you put into it. Uh, And I I just love that. I love the fact that um, everyone is equal. Everyone is rowing in the boat together. um, And, uh, you know, we we can extract whatever value we contribute into the company. So that's just an an amazing value equation and something that I've always wanted to pursue throughout my career. Um, So... My next stop uh, was at uh, was at Microsoft after the acquisition, and I spent a number of years uh, primarily doing research there. Um, and it was a great um, uh, opportunity just to look at interesting new technology developments around the world. Microsoft Research is one of the uh, most prolific corporate research labs in the entire industry. Uh, They spend billions funding that research program. Um, And when I was there, uh, I got to work in the Beijing Research Lab. So got to live in China, um, got to um, really familiarize familiarize myself with technologists in Asia, which was really fascinating and uh, I'm very proud to, and and a little bit biased, but very proud to say that I think the Beijing Research Lab was just the best research lab in all of Microsoft. We produced the most patents, we published the most papers, it was just a really prolific lab. And when I was there, I got the the entrepreneurship bug again and I started a company called Mojiti. It was developing some online video technology and we ended up selling that to Hulu. Um, And I ended up running product and engineering at Hulu for a couple of years before uh, in 2010, um, I got recruited into Kleiner Perkins. And that was my first foray into venture capital. Um, and the industry of venture capital is always fascinating to me because it is the, um, it is the genesis for entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship is a, um, um, it is a hard business to get started and you need people that are willing to believe and bet on you. And that's what venture capitalists do. So it was always very exciting to, um, to, to be able to talk to VCs and be able to talk to investors and, and kind of get in their mindset. So I was really excited to get a chance to learn that side of the, uh, the business. And um, another uh, big reason why I went to Kleiner was uh, the opportunity to work with Al Gore. So uh, when I first joined Kleiner, uh, it was specifically to focus on uh, helping Al and uh, working with him very closely as his, uh, his chief of staff at Kleiner. Um, and uh, I'm really personally passionate about climate change and uh, the importance of solving that great problem for this country. So I'm sorry, for the world in general. Um, And uh, what better place to learn about climate change and get involved with that than at Kleiner Perkins and and with Al Gore. So I got to do that for a few years before yet again, the entrepreneurship bug uh, bit me and I and I wanted to uh, to start another company. So um, I ended up incubating a company inside of Kleiner, which we sold and I um, spent a couple of years just developing technologies for various Kleiner portfolio companies, running engineering teams inside of different Kleiner portfolio companies before uh, being recalled uh, or redrafted back into the, uh, the Army in 2015 uh, and rejoined Kleiner to, uh, to focus on our consumer practice. So at Kleiner Perkins, uh, we have a couple of different focus areas. Uh, 
consumer technologies, uh, enterprise technologies for companies, and a life sciences uh, group, as well as hardware. Uh, and at Kleiner, uh, I focus on our early stage consumer practice, so trying to identify what the next Facebook, Google, Hulu, Airbnb, Twitter, these companies will be uh, working with early stage companies that, uh, that are still maybe a couple of people, um, just finished a product, uh, could be just even idea and they're trying to get that off the ground. And um, uh, it's, it's really fascinating. The, the thing that I like the most about um, uh, getting to work in venture capital is the amazing amount of intellectual freedom you get. It actually reminds me a lot of my, uh, my days back uh, as a researcher at, at Microsoft. Uh, when you're researching, you have complete intellectual freedom. In fact, it is, it, it, we get paid every day to be curious. That, that is really the definition of a researcher. And uh, venture capital is very much the same way. Um, it's a lot about pursuing intellectual freedoms and being paid to be curious about what are interesting trends, what are interesting technologies coming around, and how can they impact people's lives and, um, and create really amazing businesses. So um, I am a, um, a paid, curious mind. That's, that's really how I think of myself in, in this new role. Uh, and I get the pleasure of getting to chat with amazing entrepreneurs and having opportunities like this one today. That is awesome. And what's really fascinating about your career in particular is that you've been on almost every angle of this ecosystem. So you were with a growing company, a part of which went public. You were at Microsoft. You did research. You started your own company. You were with Hulu. So it's this very, very different spaces. And then obviously within venture capital, both focusing on something you're passionate about, the environment, uh, working with Al Gore. Um, it's a really amazing journey. So having gone through it all, um, just at a very high level, like how would you define like the role of an entrepreneur in society and a role of the venture capitalist in society so that our audience can get a handle on like from someone who's been on all sides, how you define it personally? That's a great question. Um, one of my uh, favorite books uh, is by Peter Drucker, who is kind of the godfather of business and invented management, which is mind blowing to me that management was like a concept that had to be invented like to manage people. So pretty amazing um, thinker. And Drucker has this book called uh, Innovation Entrepreneurship. And um, uh, he talks just a lot about the process of uh, entrepreneurship and of building businesses. And the I think the biggest takeaway is just how important entrepreneurship is for the world economy. The vast majority of new job opportunities, the vast majority of economic growth um, is created by startups and created by new businesses, not by incumbent businesses, uh, which is you know, really fascinating because you see, you know, Apple pledging a billion dollars to build out data centers and Amazon hiring tens of thousands of people, but the real economic driver is still small businesses. And um, that to me is the most important uh, part of entrepreneurship. It's that you create opportunities for people to improve their lives. Uh, you create uh, jobs, you create working environments, you just help stimulate economic growth. Um, one of my uh, favorite um, Twitter accounts is this Twitter called, account called Brilliant Ads, um, which I love. Uh, just like really funny, interesting ad campaigns. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, they tweeted out a picture of a billboard outside of a little coffee shop. And it said, um, when you buy from a small business, you're not supporting a rich CEO's third vacation property. What you're doing 
is you are putting you know a kid through school you're paying for dance lessons for um, somebody's niece you are funding baseball jerseys for the local community softball team um, you're you're creating real economic value and I thought that was so brilliant and so true and that I think that is the number one most important thing that that entrepreneurs end up doing for for society and then there is uh, amazing technology uh, disruptions that happen but that's when I put on sort of my Kleiner Perkins um, venture capital bias because we focus so much on technology entrepreneurship but I think of entrepreneurship as actually so much broader than that. It's this idea of creating new businesses. Uh, they don't have to be tech-enabled, but anyone that creates new businesses is doing amazing good for the economy because they're creating these opportunities for everyone. All right, so it, when you look at, there's all kinds of entrepreneurs, there's all kinds of businesses, um, but there's a particular type of business that could probably benefit the most from venture capital and vice versa. There are particular businesses that venture capitalist wants to back the most. Yeah. So what is in that sweet spot? So VCs, venture capitalists, it's, um, you know, it's often it's, it's misunderstood or, or maybe unknown field. And, and what might be helpful is just to talk a little bit about um, uh, exactly what we do and what our, um, our goals are. So um, venture capitalists, we invest out of a fund. So we have uh, amount of capital that's committed. Uh, you know, it could be a hundred million dollars, it could be ten million dollars, it could be a billion dollars. But we invest that capital, and we try to generate returns for our investors. We call them limited partners. So, just as startups pitch venture capitalists, venture capitalists actually pitch limited partners to try to raise money. So we we fundraise too. We have our own investors, um, and what those investors want, the limited partners that invest in venture capitalists, what they want more than anything else is they want uh, beta. They want they want risk. They want to invest in an asset class that can deliver tremendous risk. Because to have a well-balanced portfolio, you know, if, if we as venture capitalists are, you know, managing $100 million of capital, our limited partners could be managing tens of billions of dollars in capital. And when you're thinking about that much capital, you need a very balanced portfolio. You need things that have um, constant rate of returns, that are annuities, that are maybe real estate holdings, but you also need to invest in risk profiles. Uh, you need to invest in things that can have, uh, you know, Facebook, Google, thousand X alpha returns, uh, or you could lose all the money. And it's actually healthy for a portfolio to have low risk and high risk blended in. That's how you construct a um, a healthy portfolio. And what venture capitalists do is that we provide risk. We sell risk back to our LPs. Um, it's actually hard to find risk. It really is. It's hard to find opportunities that can deliver a thousand X return. It's it's far easier to find opportunities that can you know deliver a 2% return or 5% return, but deliver a thousand times, it's, it's really challenging. So we're really in the, the, uh, the full-time business of trying to deliver beta to our LPs or trying to deliver risk to them. And therefore, the types of investments that we look at are, are typically things that can become really huge disruptive bets that can become um, very, very large companies. So therefore, uh, that's a very specific type of business. Uh, there are tons of great businesses that exist that just aren't a right fit for, uh, for venture capitalists because um, they don't have the chance at delivering a uh, 100x return. You know, a venture capitalist, they, they, will, they would shy away from something that has, 
you know, a very high likelihood of generating a 50% return uh, versus something that's a very low likelihood of generating a hundred times return. Um, because we are really responsible for trying to find and deliver risk back to our limited partners. So that's really the type of, uh, first and foremost, the type of businesses that we want to invest in. Things that have tremendous beta that could uh, be very, very large disruptive companies that can have uh, outsized returns. And then uh, narrowing down a little bit, when you think about traditional Silicon Valley venture capitalists, we definitely have a, a strong bias towards technology. Technology being the um, the kind of unifying philosophy of the companies we invest in and how they plan to generate those returns. Um, again, there's 100 time risk opportunities in non-technical businesses. It happens all the time. But in general, for a Silicon Valley investor, the, the bias tends to be around things that have a technology component. And the reason that is, is simply most venture capital investors in Silicon Valley have a technology background or some technology experience, and therefore um, evaluating technology companies is just something that we're more familiar with. It's, it's easier for us to look at um, this algorithm versus that algorithm, or um, this chip design versus that chip design, and, and, and kind of make an educated best on which one could have the best likelihood for success versus us evaluating uh, this brand versus that brand. Um, and you know, it's just harder for us to quantify and, uh, and, and get comfortable assessing the risk. So therefore we just in general tend to have more of a technology bias, but it's not, um, it's not a hard and fast rule. I would say though the hard and fast rule is that we are looking for things that have the ability to have very large outsized outcomes. So we are looking for things that can deliver that risk or that beta that we need to our LPs. And then as a second order, they generally tend to have a technology focus. All right, that was an excellent description of the whole industry. And when you kind of look at where venture capital is today, reflecting on the past, like how it came about in the first place, yeah. uh, and then also then looking ahead. So you mentioned obviously the importance of technology as a unifying theme. And it's interesting that right now you're also focused on early stage consumer, where branding and so forth does, I assume, play a larger role yeah. in many extents. So I'd love for you to just uh, speak to a little bit about the current trends as they relate to how VC was historically yeah. and where it's heading. So I'll, I'll start off with, because um, uh, to me there's two questions here. The first is about how uh, investing has evolved and the second is around consumer trends. The interesting thing is that investing is being disrupted today by technology, much in the same way that industries are being changed by technology. Um, investing a few decades ago, I would describe it as um, Capital was both necessary and sufficient in that uh, if you had capital, there were actually very few places to go find investors. It was a very scarce resource. So simply by having capital, you had a good chance of having uh, access to the, the best opportunities. And if you invested in them, you gave those companies a significant advantage in terms of being successful because um, the company that you chose to invest in you gave it the gift of capital, which the co other competitors would probably not get. So it was, a, I think, a more self-fulfilling ecosystem that existed decades ago. But in recent times, it's been changed a lot in that uh, capital is now necessary, but no longer sufficient because there are plenty sources of it, uh, plenty, uh, plentiful sources of it. In addition, technology has made uh, access to capital even easier through things like crowdfunding, um, you can find, you know, you don't have to come to a, 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 a Sand Hill Road or a Silicon Valley venture capitalist anymore. You can 
find a pool of investors online uh, through through crowdsourcing. And also technology has made it harder to um, identify what companies are truly breakout because it's such a um, democratizing force these days. And, and that brings us to the second point about consumer trends. The biggest consumer trend that we're seeing is just how ubiquitous technology is and how accessible it is to people. So um, it's pain, it pains me personally to say this because I'm an engineer and you know, sort of my job security was being able to write better code than the person next to me. But now the code that I write is the very, very similar to the code the person next to me writes. It's been really democratized and it's been made accessible by, by a lot of people. So now technology is no longer the clear differentiator in the success of a company that it was uh, a generation ago. Having the best technology and having the best product doesn't mean that you'll win in your space. It doesn't. And and therefore, the brand, the the design, the customer experience, the way it's marketed matters so much more now uh, because of how ubiquitous and accessible technology is. So much in the same way that the technology is in, um, uh, sort of made capital more accessible, I think it's just made businesses more access, access, uh, accessible to entrepreneurs. So an entrepreneur today, you don't need a PhD from Stanford and a check from Kleiner Perkins to launch a company. You could, you know, uh, read a book on, you know, how to how to program. You could do it visually. You could uh, outsource it to uh, companies. You could use just sort of drag and drop design tools like Envision and then outsource it to um, uh, a, design, uh, a, a development shop in Romania to actually build you your prototype. Um, you could do that instead of costing you millions for you know, tens of thousands of dollars, you could put it on a credit card now. That has just completely changed the game for um, how accessible it is to start businesses, which makes it harder to evaluate because there are now just so many more companies out there to, to have to, to look at. Um, and it's uh, it makes it harder, but also it makes it, I think, a lot more fun because now you're really just constrained by your idea and your conviction to pursue that idea. There's no longer these fundamental constraints about can it actually be built? Can it, um, uh, you know, can we raise enough money to build it? There, there, and not to diminish that those opportunities still exist. You know, like what Elon Musk is doing are still like the incredibly complex, challenging problems that take a significant amount of capital raised. But um, there are now millions of other business opportunities that used to be as challenging as setting someone to Mars. Um, but now technology is made access to those opportunities um, so much more ubiquitous such that anyone with a great idea can more than likely pursue that idea on a fraction of the cost than it would have taken just 10 years ago. And that's, I think, a really exciting thing both for entrepreneurs and for investors. It certainly makes our job harder because there's a lot more companies to look through, but it, it does make it a lot more exciting. So if you fast forward and look to the future, where do you think this, what, what do you think this will lead to? Yeah, um, you know, I, I'm a big believer in um, in just sort of evolutionary mechanics, and the more uh, great companies that you have competing for the precious limited resources of consumer time, uh, it will just lead to better and better services and better and better companies. So I think it's actually a very healthy thing for um, for society and for users uh, at large. Um, now, uh, you know, w one way that, that we think about this is that um, 
10 years ago, you could have sort of like uh, uh, what we call uh, a minimal viable product, just a product that kind of just does one or two things just at a basic level to demonstrate the functionality of that product. And consumers would typically uh, tolerate that. They would stick around. They would, you know, say, well, you know, by the next release, it'll be better. The next release will be better. You know, at Microsoft, um, uh, there's always kind of this joke that because um, they would release a product and they release what they call a service pack, which is a whole bunch of bug fixes for that product. And the product was not really truly released until, you know, like service pack two or service pack three. And that's when the product was actually released. And consumers would, they would stick with you. They would purchase the first product. They would, you know, install the first service pack and they would install the second service pack. And then by then you would have the finished product and everyone would go about their day and they would just kind of deal with that pain leading up into that. But now because of all the choices, if that first product isn't great, consumers are just going to move on to something else because there are 10 other companies waiting to to earn the right to take up your attention, to take up that moment in your life. Um, and therefore, the bar is so much higher and such that it's no longer a minimal viable product. It's sort of a minimum delightful product. Uh, you have to delight consumers right from day one. So I think that overall, this wave of more entrepreneurs um, accessing technology and creating more products is just going to lead to higher quality products. And I think that that's a, a great thing for consumers as a whole. So I think that that hasn't, um, that, that dynamic hasn't changed. What's changed uh, um, for the negative is just, um, it is really hard to, um, to, to filter through that. It's really hard to, um, uh, to decide what are the right products to adopt in your life. And then, it can be painful when you adopt a product um, and invest the time and then that product goes away because the entrepreneur got bored and wanted to move on to something and it was kind of easy for that person to uh, to give up on that idea and go on to something else. So, you know, the time that you invested um, using this specific app could be wasted because it could go away in a short amount of time. So I think that that, that temporary nature can be challenging as, as well as kind of the learning curve of having to constantly be curious about what to adopt and, and, and what to use. So um, I think we do need more uh, around recommendations. I think we do need uh, to help users with discovery um, to surface the right products and the right services to them at the right moments. Um, but again, that is yet again uh, another startup. There will be an entrepreneur that helps solve that. So um, I am very bullish that, that the flywheel that we have around um, entrepreneurs um, pursuing opportunities in this meritocracy, this open uh, system, I think is going to deliver the right value to, to consumers. All right. So you, you talked about uh, how there has been a democratization in terms of technology is more accessible and capital is more accessible. Mm -hmm. So it levels the playing field a little bit, but then obviously the counter effect of that is that then it becomes very competitive. Yes. And what you mentioned specifically there was... Uh, you know, it's for an entrepreneur, the idea matters a lot more and then their ability to stick with it, their level of conviction. Yes. So let's really dive in now to the psychology of a, an entrepreneur that is more likely than not to succeed. Yeah. Um, clearly, like you said, I mean, this is a high risk uh, business that you're in, or I'll put it this way, you're being paid to take risks. So you're looking for things that have a chance of failing, yeah. but it might also bring uh, a big return. Um, so when you're evaluating an idea and an entrepreneur, 
So one area you covered is, okay, it needs to be, you know, kind of high risk, high return yeah. uh, potential. What are the other things that you look for when you're evaluating the person and their idea? So there's three very clear um, criteria that uh, we at Kleiner Perkins judge and evaluate all the companies that, that we see through three dimensions. Um, the first is the market opportunity. So uh, as we mentioned, it just has to be a very large market opportunity such that if you manage to take a small percentage of it, you can still create a very valuable company. So we shy away from things where the entire market opportunity you know, is maybe $100 million or $10 million or even a billion dollars because um, the reality is that it's, you probably won't be able to capture all of it. So if you only capture a small percentage of a $100 million market, then your company as a whole is only worth millions of dollars and that's not providing the, the high risk, uh, high beta uh, investment opportunity back to our customers, our LPs. So we typically pursue um, or, or are most interested in uh, entrepreneurs that are pursuing market opportunities that are measured in the tens of billions of dollars. So that's kind of the thinking. And again, because if you're pursuing something that's a $50 billion market opportunity and you can capture um, 10% of it, right? You now have a $5 billion business and that's very, very, very valuable. So um, that's that's the first thing. It just has to be a very large addressable market that you're going after. Um, the second thing that we uh, always look at is the timing. Um, and uh, for us, uh, the question that we ask is why now? Why does this company exist now versus five years ago or five years from now? And it's so important to get the timing right. Um, you know, Victor Hugo has a famous line that says, there's nothing more powerful than an idea that's found its time. So, um, uh, or an idea whose time has come. But um, that is that is something that we really um, think long and hard about. And um, the, the, uh, the case of the company having, should have existed five years ago, and by now you're too late, that's the easy, that's typically the easy one to evaluate. Because, um, uh, the, the, the way to evaluate that is that you look at opportunity and um, if it should have existed five years ago, that means that somebody did probably invent a solution five years ago and now they're a very successful company and there's maybe no way to unseat that company. So, you know, if an entrepreneur came to us today and said, uh, you know, we want to sell books online, we would say it's a brilliant, brilliant idea. But, you know, it got it got started in 95. And at this point, I don't know how you sell books online better than a certain company that does a very, very good job selling books online. Mm -hmm. So um, that, that case is usually pretty obvious. The really hard one to evaluate is if the company is better off existing five years from now, if you're too early. And in our business of investing, being too early can be just as bad as being too late. So, uh, you know, a, a very practical example of that is around VR, virtual reality. Um, I genuinely have no doubt that virtuality is going to be such a huge platform and huge business opportunity um, that will transform lives around around the world. I have no doubt about that. I could believe that with you know every bone in my body, I have conviction that that's the case. I couldn't tell you when though. Um, is it five years from now? Is it one year from now? Is it 30 years from now? I honestly couldn't tell you when. And therefore, um, that can be very scary because you could have the bet right. But if you get the timing wrong, it's just the same as having the bet wrong or being too late. Being too early is a, is a very negative thing too in our business. So that's the hard one that we always obsess about. And we try to try to get that, that bet right. Um, I was, I was actually talking with a, 
um, a buddy of mine, uh, his name's Scott Belsky, who's a great entrepreneur and a great investor. And uh, he said, uh, the best time to invest in a company is right before it becomes obvious. So I think that's a good way to frame it. You know, we, we love it to be right on the cusp, but not yet totally obvious. And that's when you know the timing is not right. But there's, there's very much an art to figuring that out. So um, trying to decipher that question about why now is another and very important part of why we invest. And then the last is really about the entrepreneur and the team around them. And at Kleiner, we have a very specific question that we ask, which is, is this entrepreneur a missionary entrepreneur or a mercenary entrepreneur? And both can build great businesses, but we really want to back missionary entrepreneurs and not mercenary entrepreneurs. And we define that as someone that's pursuing an idea or a passion or a mission that's greater than themselves, that's greater than their own personal interests. And the reason that we want to um, back missionary entrepreneurs is partly selfish. Um, they're just so much more fun to hang out with. Um, they're just so much more uh, exciting to be around. But when we've done studies around this, we actually find that they create more valuable companies. Um, and it's because um, if you kind of think through it logically, a missionary entrepreneur, the mission can drive them for longer periods of time. They can sustain for longer. They typically will work harder because the mission is driving them. And then the mission is such a great rallying cry to help them recruit and build a fantastic team around. So um, um, the the missionary entrepreneur we find just leads to better investment decisions. Um, and and, uh, is, and yet the, it is the final most important part of why we invest. So again, it's around the market opportunity, it's around the timing, and then it's around uh, the missionary entrepreneur. Absolutely, okay. So let's say somebody um, is extremely passionate about an idea and they've done their homework. So they have done the numbers and they know this is a big market and they believe this is the right time because the right technologies are available. No one's yet done it, but it's not that hard for them to get to the next level. Let's say this person, you know, and they're missionary about, you know, what what they're- I'm already taking my checkbook out. (laughs) What do you got for me? So let's say, you know, we're gonna have thousands of people listening to this who might feel like this is me or this is about to me me in like six months or a year this is what I'm like this is where I'm on the path to let's say somebody fulfills these ingredients which are very hard but let's say they do what is the best way in which they can connect with VC investors like if you were to give advice to somebody who was a bit let's say they're a bit more green about raising money like it's just not something that they've done but let's say they check these three boxes how would you advise as somebody goes about it yeah uh what, what might be uh, the best way to think this, uh, think about this is to understand the different um, evolutions of a company and where investors play in that evolution. Uh, because it, it's actually um, a couple of very distinct stages. Um, and to start off philosophically, what an investor does is, uh, or a venture capitalist or a, just a you know startup investor, what we do is we provide capital to remove risks. So we give money in exchange for that money, you spend the money to make the business less risky. Um, and um, that, that, that's, the, that's the cycle that we plan. There's no business that, I, that, that comes to us that has no risks. Um, that, that, that's Facebook, that's Google, that's a, a company that has a proven monetization, uh, user base, technology advantage, it's highly profitable. Um, those opportunities don't come to us. Um, what comes to us is um, 
a, a great idea on the back of a napkin. Um, a cool algorithm that don't know if it scales. Uh, an interesting business that has some revenue, but uh, only works in New York. So will it work in the rest of the, the, the country? That's what we see. So um, what we really, when we look at companies, they are um, uh, a collection of risks. Um, and at the early stage, uh, when you're first forming the company, you're generally, um, all you have is your risks. Um, when you have an idea on the paper, the, the really tangible asset is that you've just uh, created a long list of risks. That is the business. The business is a list of risks. Um, and then as you start to build the business, you end up removing the risks. The risks start to uh, go away and you replace those risks with more tangible assets. So that's the evolution of a company. And the investor's role is to provide you the capital to take out those risks. Um, now, the key thing for entrepreneurs to realize is that different investors um, play a role in different stages of this evolution. So early on, when you have uh, just the idea for the company and all you are is a list of risks, that's actually not typically the place where a institutional investor like Kleiner Perkins plays. That's usually where uh, an angel investor, uh, a, a seed investor, uh, somebody um, uh, uh, maybe uh, that's managing a smaller pool of capital. That's where they typically play. Um, and so early on, when you're um, this giant list of risks, those are the investors that you want to seek out. And then um, when you have removed, you know, when you've gone from a list of 100 risks and you're now to a list of 50 risks and you have some, some interesting tangible assets, that's when, um, when Kleiner, that's where our sweet spot is. That's where we want to play in. And then, you know, when you get down to... Um, you only have like two or three risks and you have a whole bunch of assets and revenue and a balance sheet, then there's a whole another set of investors. We call them growth investors that um, remove those final risks. So you really need to match the risks that you're trying to remove with the right investor. That's the key uh, uh, piece of advice that I would give to any entrepreneur because often um, you end up wasting a lot of time because you've, uh, you're targeting your list of risks at the wrong investor. So that's the, the first thing to, uh, to figure out. Um, then the second is um, investing uh, or, or taking uh, venture investing. Um, I always say that it is the most expensive money that you will ever take on. Um, it's uh, hopefully the most valuable, but it is expensive money because in exchange from, for, for the capital that we're offering uh, as, a, a, uh, as Kleiner Perkins or any other venture capital firm, in exchange for the money that I give you, you're giving me a piece of your company. That's super valuable. There are plenty of places that you could raise money without giving that up. You take a bank loan out. You can take, um, uh, you know, you could raise from friends and families. There's a lot of places you can get capital without having to give up a piece of your company. Um, for example, uh, uh, when you take out a bank loan, um, you have a, um, uh, a cap on the, uh, the upside that that institution gets. You know, when I took out a, a loan to buy a house, there was, I, I knew the total money that they would, the bank would ever make from me, the, the total upside would be, it's capped because it's just a constant rate of return that they get. Whereas when you work at the venture capital firm and you're giving up a piece of your company, the upside is completely uncapped, right? I could, as a venture capital firm, potentially earn billions or tens of billions of dollars uh, for my you know, $1 million investment because I have ownership in your company and that ownership is, uh, um, the potential of that is uncapped. So it is very 
um, expensive uh, uh, money that you're taking on when you take on an investor. But we hope it's the most valuable. So that's the key. When you're trying to figure out what investors to work with, remember it's really expensive capital and you really need to maximize around the value of that capital. So the value is delivered in terms of having a great partner that's gonna support you throughout your journey as an entrepreneur, having uh, a, a set of investors that can open up connections for you, um, having uh, somebody with great domain experience in the area that you're uh, developing your company in that can really be a great thought partner for you. Those are the things that you really wanna optimize around for because of how expensive the capital is um, for you. So that would be the, the next step is just to, to really be thoughtful about picking the right partner um, because it is just very expensive capital that you're taking on. You're giving up part of your company to get access to that capital. Um, and then the final thing is that there's, it, it, it's not a, it's not a transactional uh, relationship. It's not this one snapshot in time. It's not where, you know, Hey, I'm going to fundraise now. So now is the only time that we're going to talk to some investors and I'm going to, uh, I just want to get some intros and I'm going to like, give them this PowerPoint presentation and then I'll get a check and then I'll never see them again. Um, we find that the best uh, entrepreneurs who are great at uh, raising capital, they are always raising capital. They are always fundraising. They're always meeting with investors, They're always thinking about the next raise. They're always developing the relationship because they understand it's not this one-off transactional moment. It's not going down to a department store and, and buying a pair of jeans. It is a relationship business that you're building. It's it's really picking your, your future brother-in-law, it's picking your wife, it's picking your husband, it's, you know, it's really investing in a very long-term relationship. So you're constantly um, um, taking the time to meet with, with investors, to, uh, to research firms, to, to develop that relationship. Um, and if you do that, it can often lead to the fastest, most efficient fundraising, which is a little bit counterintuitive and ironic, but that's the case. Um, uh, you know, we, we joke in our industry that if you ask for money, you'll get advice, and if you ask for advice, you'll get money. So, constantly be talking to entrepreneur uh, to investors, looking for advice, trying to assess out: Are they the right fit for my business? Is their firm going to bring the right value to me? Because this is very expensive capital that I'm taking on, and by making that investment, you actually make your fundraise a lot easier. Absolutely. So, in a way, it's kind of like get as much information as possible by getting to know, invest in those relationships. That's right. Constantly as you're on the different um, stages of the company life cycle. Yeah. Um, that's great advice. And just uh, without getting too granular, but in general, what are the main kind of terms that an entrepreneur and the investor kind of think about when they're deciding whether to consummate a deal? So right. price is clearly one, but how do you think about it more broadly than that? Uh, really, really great question. So, um, in general, pr uh, price is the um, is the most obvious term that people think about. But um, the mistake that I see a lot of people make, uh, entrepreneurs and, and also investors, really, when they think about investment opportunities, is to um, introduce a whole lot of other terms. In general, investment should be as clean and as simple as possible. Um, and when you start to see a lot of complex terms where, you know, we are going to have control over this part of your business or um, if, you know, 
you sell at this price, we get this extra, you know, uh, uh, equity kicker. We, you know, it, often it's called a ratchet. Um, or if, um, you know, if you uh, uh, sell, we get some multiple over our ownership. Like we get a minimum uh, uh, preference on our on our ownership. And you start getting cute with the terms. Um, that's when you run into problems. So the, the first thing I'd always advise entrepreneurs is, um, yes, price is the dial, but try to make that the only dial. Don't get cute with, um, you know, turning the dial on price very high and then adjusting these other small dials around these other things that you don't think will matter because at the end of the day, they always matter. Um, and another thing to think about is whatever terms you commit to in this current financing, um, the next one you should assume will have those exact same terms and worse. It's the baseline. So if you give up, you know, this control, whatever it is over your business in this current financing, the next financing, you will give up that same control plus something else. It will only go in one direction. The terms will only get more onerous as you grow your company. So something to think about. And that's why it's just so important to keep the terms as simple as possible and really make it just about the price. And if that means that you lower the price in order to have to not adjust any other knob, it's worth it in the long run. Um, that, that's really the first rule of thumb is just to keep the terms as simple as possible. At Kleiner, um, our term sheet is one page. Um, and if we need more than one page for the term sheet, then there's probably something wrong with the business or um, we need to just rethink the price uh, in order to get it down to one page because it, it really should be very, very simple uh, in terms of the terms. Um, as it pertains to price, the best way to think about it is what um, investors are really more concerned about is actually not the price, it's the ownership. And I know that that's kind of strange to think about because they're the same, <laughs> right? The price is really just a math equation around the ownership, but what investors care about more is the ownership than the price. Um, whether the company is valued at five, 10, $20 million, um, it's, it's not really that meaningful to the investor because our bet is that this can go from five to a billion or from 20 to a billion. So in one case, we saw $980 million of value creation. In the other case, we saw $995 million of value creation, but it's less than 1% difference in the value creation. Um, that's what we care about the most is, um, um, is that value creation. Therefore, the price coming in is really not, is not material. Um, but what is material is the ownership because the ownership is the percentage of that value creation that we'll see. Um, so when you think about it at the, the various stages, um, like a seed investor or an angel investor, they're typically looking from, for call it like five to 15% ownership. Um, that's kind of what they want. Maybe the sweet swat is trying to get 10% ownership. Um, and the price is really not that interesting. What is interesting is that they really want to get to that 10% ownership threshold. And then similarly, when um, the venture capitals come in at the next round of financing, we're trying to get 20 to 25% ownership. Um, and whether it's you know a $10 million valuation or 20 or 30, that's really not the material thing. What's material is that we get 20% ownership because that's how we capture that value creation. Um, so uh, you, as an entrepreneur, it's important to kind of understand that psychology for the, uh, the investor because the investor is not really obsessing about the price. They're obsessing far more about the ownership. And it, you know, it's, it's funny to say that because at the end of the day, they're, they're really the exact same thing. It's a, it's a math equation to convert one to the other, but 
the entrepreneur is typically thinking about one side of the equation, which is the price, and the, and the investors think about the other side of the equation, which is the percent ownership. Um, so uh, the way that you can um, kind of affect that is uh, often with the amount of money that you raise. And um, th that's kind of the, 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 the conversion factor between price and ownership is just the amount of money that you raise. Um, and in general, what the, the right thing for the business is that you should raise as little money as possible to remove the risks of that um, uh, uh, of the business. So again, you, you're you're just starting a company. Uh, you're uh, you know when you just start a company, you're nothing but a list of a hundred risks. So, um, what is the minimum amount of money that I can raise to remove enough risks to get me to the next milestone? So, if I need to remove thirty risks, can I um, do that with hundred k? Can I do that with three hundred k? Do that with five hundred k? That is the that is really the way that um, both the investor and the entrepreneur should be thinking about the business. Um, and if you can have an honest conversation with your, um, your prospective investor around that, I think you'll end up at the right valuation and the right, uh, ownership level for everyone involved. I think when you are not transparent about that, that's when you get a little bit cute where you're like, I'm not being transparent with you that I want 20% and you're not being transparent with me that you want a $10 million valuation. So we're kind of dancing around and and we never can get it right. Um, so let's be really transparent about that. And then let's also, on top of all that, overlay this business needs, you know, one and a half million dollars of capital to get to that next hurdle. So if we can have a really transparent conversation around those three factors, I think we'll ultimately end up at the right thing for the business. All right. Actually, on that point, <clears throat> to, to build off of that, um, the use of funds then in a way is determining, you know, essentially the entrepreneur is thinking about, okay, to eliminate the next set of risks, how much money do I need? Yeah. And then that actually does drive, in a way, the valuation because yes. the investor is looking for a certain percentage ownership. That's right. So in a way, another of the, you mentioned the three key criteria that you had, but in the end, I feel like the entrepreneur and the investor yeah. then really has to agree on how much capital does this business need to get to the next stage. That's right. right? And, and the key is not to... Um, again, over-optimize around price around uh, as the entrepreneur, around ownership as the investor um, at the expense of the business. So, you know, for the entrepreneur to get their $10 million valuation and for the investor to get their 20% ownership, maybe they artificially arrive at the number that we need to invest $2 million in this company to, to get to that level. But um, the business could, could actually need um, $5 million, or it could really need $500K. And where you go wrong is if both sides forget what the business actually needs. So yes, the entrepreneur wants the price, the investor wants the ownership, but overlaid across all this is always keeping in mind what the business actually needs. Mm -hmm. Because um, uh, you know we like to say, don't maximize for dilution, don't maximize, and, and by dilution I mean the amount of your ownership in your company you're giving up. Um, don't maximize for um, price, don't maximize for anything other than success. Like you maximize for business success. And as an entrepreneur, you should often remind your investor of that too. You should remind your investor about like, hey, you know, you're getting stuck on this like 20% or 25% or whatever, 30%, whatever it is. You're getting stuck on this ownership thing. And because of that, your solution is to put a whole bunch of extra capital in this company that it doesn't need. And are, are we really optimizing for success here? Let's like 
let's let's have that conversation. So um, it, it can be helpful for the entrepreneur to really turn that back on the investor as well. Hopefully, the investor is being responsible and is is talking that through and really trying to um, impart that upon the entrepreneur. But sometimes the entrepreneur should turn around and, and really reflect that question back at the investor. Yeah. Have you seen many entrepreneurs asking for less money? I have. Yep. Yeah. I think some of the best um, the best financing, the best rounds are ones where it's such a great entrepreneur with a great business idea and there's so much excitement that there are a lot of firms that want to get involved in the company. And the easiest thing to do would be like, okay, I'm just going to take, you know, instead of raising $1 million, I'm going to raise $3 million. I'm going to take $1 million from each of the three firms that are just fighting for my business. And that could overcapitalize a company and it could set the company up for not being successful. It's not maximizing success. So some of the best entrepreneurs say, no, I'm going to be very disciplined and I'm only going to work with one of you and it's going to be a hard conversation, but I'm going to take less money than is available to me. I find that the best companies end up in that situation where they're taking less capital than that's actually available to them. All right. Um, so let's um, let's dive into some, you know, we you gave some incredible advice on like the things that people should do. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes uh, what's also very helpful for learning is things that people should not do. Yeah. Uh, the most common mistakes. So when it comes to both the entrepreneurs and the investors, what are the most common mistakes do you see people making? Right. Uh, so I think the uh, yeah, we talked about making it very transactional. That is typically a mistake because it is not a transaction. Once, um, once it's, or it's certainly not a transaction where there is a winner and a loser. Um, you know, if 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 you're um, bargaining at a, um, you know, at a, a, a uh, at a flea market, um, that's usually a transaction where there's just a winner and a loser, and you go about your day. Either I overpaid or I underpaid, and then you know you, you go on to the next the, the next investment or the next merchant. Um, investing in a company is not like that. It's not like Oh man, Barry, um, you, you won that one. I really overpaid. Good for you. Like, congratulations. You know what? We're in this together. I am now an owner of your company, and the fact that I overpaid will be a a long point that we will have to work through together for a long time. Similarly, um, uh, it, it's not like, hey, I, I undervalued your company, and and you would be like, hey, good 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 job, Eric. Con- congrats on winning that round of negotiating. Uh, there will be sort of downstream problems, long-term resentment for a long time. You, you, it, it's not a transactional thing. It's a relationship. And there's no winner or loser because after this, we are now married. We are now working together for the next decade on this company. So we're partners in this. So therefore, um, never think of this as a transactional thing. That's one, that's one thing. Um, the second thing to remember is that um, uh, when you're a startup, um, you as an entrepreneur actually have a lot of um, a lot of leverage. People often think that the investor has all the leverage in terms of well, I get to pick which companies that um, that I choose to invest in, but um, that's not the case because uh, the entrepreneur has a very substantial leverage, which is they choose to pick at what moment they want to set a price for their company. So um, if you're a public company, if you're Facebook. Um, the value of your company is set every second of every day. Uh, it gets set on good news. It gets set on bad news. It gets set on good days. It gets set on bad days. But it is set every second of every day. But as a startup, the the most important thing or the most important leverage that you as an entrepreneur have is that um, your price doesn't change every day. It doesn't get set every day. It, it doesn't trade every day. You choose when it trades. You can choose to set it on 
a bad day, you can choose to set it on a good day, but you have full control of that. So because of your ability to, to set the price, um, or set the moment where the market sets the price, you actually have a lot of leverage. And it's one where you should be very careful about that. So um, on, the, on the negatives, um, if you choose to set it after uh, you, know, you just got sued, uh, your co-founder just quit on you, um, you're, you just lost your key customer, uh, and you're running out of money, that's not a good time to go out and price your company. You're going to be pricing on nothing but bad news, right? Um, so be mindful of that. But at the same time, if you choose to price it right after um, you got this deal um, uh, that, uh, that you know, secretly might be going away in, um, in, a, in a matter of, uh, of days, or you... Um, um, you, you know that your business is really abnormally great in the month of May, but it's terrible in June. So you're kind of setting it today and, and, and being misleading about when, um, uh, uh, what's going to happen in the future. Um, that's actually bad as well um, in that you have a responsibility to, to, be, um, uh, to be, I would say, uh, mindful of when you're choosing to set your price. As, as you know, that, again, that is your moment of leverage, but just exercise it responsibly. I think that's the, the key. Um, and it kind of goes back to the first point of it being non-transactional and it not, um, uh, you, you're not gonna win the round with your investor. And you're not gonna lose it either, but you're not gonna win it um, because you're just in it together. It's not a zero-sum theme. There's no clear winner or loser at the end. It is a long-term partnership uh, at, 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 at the end of this journey. So really treat it uh, as such. Um, and um, th- th- uh, related, finally, to build off of when you set the price, um, I find that that being just transparent and honest and objective about the data is the best thing. Um, it shows that you have, A, a mastery of the, the metrics around your business, but also um, you have confidence and they, they stand on their own. Um, I think that that is, um, that is a really key part of it. So um, I, I always find it strange when you know, companies are very cagey about uh, their data or, um, you know, don't don't broadcast it to the world. But, you know, if you're having a substantive conversation with an investor, then, you know, be honest about it. They should be excited about the um, the current state of the company. They should be excited about how the business is progressing and developing. And therefore, uh, the more that you can just be open and honest about the data, I think the better it is uh, going to be for the relationship in the long term. Mm-hmm. So just some high-level uh, feedback on how to, I think, run a really efficient investment process from a strategic standpoint. Yeah, no, I love that key theme of just treat it like a relationship. So therefore, everything you do should be focused on the long term and making sure that whether it's your price, whether it's your negotiation, uh, it should all be towards maximizing the uh, value of the longer term relationship. Um, next, I want to just quickly go into uh, your specific area of focus now. So that's very much focused on consumer and also media. Um, and you mentioned, you know, these are like they, this this area of focus has its own quirks. And uh, for many of our listeners, this is also the area where most people get their ideas because these are more everyday, open to like understandable yeah. to consumer businesses. So, what is the kind of current state of affairs when it comes to consumer focused investing and the entrepreneurship scene? And where do you see it going? Yeah, we uh, uh, on the investment side um, have very healthy debates about this all the time because um, there's one school of thought that is we are in a 
drought in terms of really breakout interesting consumer companies. Um, and I think you can make a valid case for that. You could say that the last truly breakout consumer company was Snapchat, and that launched in 2011. Whereas if you look at what was launched in you know, 2007, 8, 9, 10, 11, like the five years before that, it was Twitter, Instagram, WhatsApp, Uber, Pinterest, Airbnb. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, and they were just like coming out like clockwork. And then since Snapchat in 2011, it's been a long drought. Um, so I think you can make a, a pretty credible case around that. So um, that's kind of the uh, um, uh, one way to look at the market. And and therefore, as investors, we're just constantly asking, what will it take to, to get out of this drought? Um, some people think that it'll take the advent of a new platform. So um, the rise of mobile um, and, and smartphones as this open platform did create um, amazing opportunities for entrepreneurs to build uh, transformative companies that they got to tremendous scale. So um, do we need another platform to emerge, whether it's VR, whether it's uh, autonomous vehicles, whether it's IoT, wearables? Do we need some new platform to emerge to have a lot of greenfield running rooms so that entrepreneurs can go and build companies on those new platforms? Maybe. That, that could be that could be the, the current state. Um, another way to look at it is that um, uh, great companies are actually still being built all the time. Uh, and there have been uh, great companies between um, since Snapchat in 2011. It's just that um, they are uh, maybe acquired earlier. They are uh, exiting um, uh, before they become a Snapchat because the incumbents are uh, very acquisitive. You know, they're sort of buying companies earlier. Um, that, that could be another way to look at it. Um, and um, if that's the case, then um, then then maybe um, it, it's more of a shorter cycle where you invest in companies um, and hopefully within two years they get acquired for a smaller sum than, you know, waiting six years and having Snapchat go public. And then um, you just rinse and repeat. That could be another strategy that people take. So I think what we're seeing on um, in, in the consumer investing world is that there's a lot of different school of schools of thought, um, and that is different than uh, the way it was back in 2009, 10, and 11, where I think everyone was very bullish on consumer, um, deploying a lot of capital and really investing in mobile apps. Just like that was the the pool that everyone was fishing in, um, and it was because there was this rising tide in that pool. So if you just stayed in this pool long enough, great things would happen. And now it, it's not as obvious. The, the 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 philosophies and the strategies that different investors have is is they actually um, are they, they differ quite a bit from one another. So it's not as obvious. But um, when it's not as obvious, I think that it is a lot more interesting because you can really craft your own philosophy, your own strategy around that. So um, uh, at Kleiner, some of the things that I'm super excited by um, are I'm very excited by um, you mentioned media. Media is uh, something that's just near and dear to my heart, having worked at a number of media companies like uh, Hulu and Flipboard. And the thing that I love about media is that uh, it is a, a very large industry where technology is fundamentally changing every part of that industry, every part. So if you think about some of the main parts of, of any business, you have the uh, creation of the product, you have the distribution of the product, you have the consumption of the product, and then you have the monetization of the product. So everything, like a pair of socks. You make them, you ship them out, you wear them, and then you make money from them. So that's the life cycle of a business. Uh, in media, what's 
really the most interesting is that uh, all four parts of those are being dramatically changed. The creation is being dramatically changed. You have things like user-generated content, totally different than it was 20 years ago, dramatically changed by technology. Distribution, IP delivery. You're not you know, controlling pipes anymore. Anyone can go release a piece of media content to millions, if not hundreds of millions, if not billions of people now anymore uh, nowadays because of the, uh, the internet, which is amazing. The consumption has changed as well. You're watching on completely different platforms, like small mobile phones, uh, than you were um, 10 years ago. And then finally, the monetization is very different as well. You're doing things like uh, microtransactions and subscriptions, and um, you're buying you know, streaming rights or download rights or um, over-the-air rights or VR rights or live rights. It's just, it's very, very different. So um, I think that that's what really is the appeal for me around media in that every part of the ecosystem is being disrupted. Um, so that's one area that I'm, I'm super excited about. Another one is uh, e-commerce. Um, commerce is, uh, is super interesting um, for uh, a couple reasons. Um, the first is that the pendulum has really swung back in terms of uh, transactions being a uh, very good business model um, for companies. I think that when Google really burst on the scenes in the early 2000s, the pendulum swung every way to, every which way to ads. So every company needed uh, to stop charging monetized only through advertising. That was the, you know, whether you were doing a media property, whether you were, um, you know, selling socks, whether you're selling enterprise software, it, it needed to be monetized through ads. Uh, the idea was that consumers would never pay directly for anything ever again. Um, and uh, I think largely driven by the, uh, the advent of the mobile phone, which made uh, everyone have a very powerful wallet not only a computer, but also a very powerful wallet in their um, in their in their pocket. Uh, it was more powerful because you know you can uh, you can use your credit card with your thumb. You can um, you can tap this device to transfer money. You, just, um, you could uh, purchase things for uh, forty nine cents or ninety nine cents digitally, um, which is pretty amazing with with uh, with micropayments in the app stores. I think it started to swing the pendulum back towards consumers actually willing to buy things. So it went from consumers will never pay for anything ever again. So you have to depend on advertising to support your company to now actually consumers are willing to buy things. Um, and um, that's, that's a really uh, important change. And because of that, I do see the rise of uh, transactional business models um, for startups being really important, whether it's marketplaces or subscription services or the most pure play form of transactions, e-commerce. So I'm very bullish in a, the next wave of consumer companies uh, monetizing through commerce and, um, um, and and that being the driver of business. So that's that's one factor of why I'm really bullish on e-commerce. The second is that we are now seeing a huge demographic shift with the rise of millennials, and um, you know they've been the large demo in the work in, in the U.S. population for for many many years. But what's really changed recently is that they are not only the largest population; they're also the largest population in our workforce. So this new millennial audience now is buying power. And with buying power, they are choosing brands. They are choosing the brands that they are going to be loyal to you know, for the next foreseeable future. And it's not quite clear which brands they're gonna choose. And it's not even clear if they're gonna choose the incumbent brands. So because of that, I kind of view every brand as being up for grabs. Um, 
Is it going to be Nike or Allbirds? Is it going to be Sleep Mattress or Casper? Is it going to be LensCrafters or Warby Parker? Who knows? And um, the, the interesting thing is that I think that brands that can embrace technology are going to have an advantage. Brands that embrace digital are just going to have an advantage. So this brand choice may actually skew towards new companies. So you may see more turnover in brands than uh, we did in previous years. Because anytime a generation rises to power in terms of having um, spending ability, there is that moment where they choose their new brands. But um, more often than not, they opt into the brands of the, the incumbent brands because they have the most distribution. But what's different about this new brand battle is that the millennials may opt into brands, not with the most distribution, but with the best grasp of technology. Um, because that is how they choose to interact with their products. They choose to do it through a digital uh, medium. They choose to do it through a technology medium. So brands that leverage technology may have actually an advantage and it may not be the incumbent. So that's super exciting. So when you add those two things together, I think that there will be a ton of really interesting opportunities in e-commerce. And data has so far shown that uh, if you look at arguably the three most successful consumer um, exits in the last year, it has been three commerce companies, Jet, Dollar Shave Club, and Chewy. Um, so uh, I'm very, very bullish on, on e-commerce and just businesses that have a transaction component as, um, as potentially powering the next wave of very exciting uh, consumer companies. Brand choice. Um, when it comes to brand choice, you mentioned it's more likely that millennials will opt for tech-enabled or tech-savvy brands. But another uh, parallel conversation that's happening continuously is also the values behind brands. Um, so we saw with Uber, for example, there was a, you know, their CEO says something and then a bunch of people are getting yeah. rid of the app. Um, and a lot more, you know, millennials just generally in their workplace and their choice of employer and their yeah. choice of many things are caring a bit more about you know, is it like, who makes this? What do they stand for? And That's right. What's it all about? Uh, can you speak a little bit about that? Do you do yeah. you and your team think about that too in terms of like, yeah. which brands have the actually most powerful heritage, like beyond just saving you money or making things more convenient, which brands also make you feel really good about yeah. being a good person? Absolutely. I, I think you're completely right in that um, this new dominant demographic in our workforce that has spending power these millennials, um, they do value different things. It, it may not just be about the lowest cost option. It may not just be about um, um, the most distributed option. Um, the value of the brand matters a tremendous amount. That actually makes our job as investors um, much harder because evaluating brands is, is tough. Again, evaluating technology is a more ob objective thing that you can do, whereas evaluating a brand is far more subjective. And um, there's more art than science in that. So certainly it makes it far harder to pick a brand. But um, that's why you see actually a lot of um, companies that traditionally wouldn't have been thought of as tech companies raising from, you know, Silicon Valley, mostly technology investors, but they are, you know, like um, uh, in, in, in California, we have uh, two very popular coffee shops in Phil's Coffee and Blue Bottle. They're both raised from like technology VCs. That's 
you know, you wouldn't think that that's the business that we do, but um, that is something that we're having to look at because the value creation of those companies is is not in some you know robotic laser beam coffee roaster that they got you know some MIT PhDs to create. A lot of it is just in the value of a great brand that they're building, and um, we're finding ourselves in the consumer space really having to get better at evaluating brands. But um, I think it is more of an art than a science, and we're having to play catch up to learn that art. Amazing. Um, this has been a fascinating conversation. To close us out, I really want to um, get your thoughts on, you know, for, for the sake of our audience, what makes Kleiner Perkins specifically a special firm? So what makes you guys stand out? What's made you successful? And if there is an entrepreneur at the right stage, you know, and they have their choice of investors, why would Kleiner Perkins be the right choice for them? That's just my favorite question of the entire <laughs> session now. But I appreciate, I appreciate you giving me the chance to talk a little bit about Kleiner, a firm that I'm so proud to be a part of and, um, and, and really think of it as family to me. Um, if there's anything you can think, uh, take away about Kleiner, it's these three things. Um, the first is that um, uh, we are very, very long-term, very, very long-term. Um, so uh, we think about investments in companies lasting decades, not even decade, decades with plural. Um, you know, an example, we invested in um, Google and Amazon now decades ago. And uh, we have client partners that are still on the boards of those companies today, just because we have such a long-term relationship with those companies, with the entrepreneurs that started the companies. They're part of the Kleiner family and we're very, very long-term. Um, the, the second thing to take away is that because we're long-term, um, we gotta have something to do. <laughs> uh, you know, we don't just hang around and be long-term with you and twiddle our thumbs. Um, because we're long-term, we gotta have something that we can actually be valuable to you as an entrepreneur too. So we really pride ourselves on being partners and company builders with our entrepreneurs in their journey to create a great business. Um, so for example, we were the first firm on Sand Hill Road in the Valley to bring recruiting as a function in-house. So we hired a phenomenal recruiting partner to actually lead our efforts in helping our portfolio companies find great executive talent, great outside board members, you know, even CEOs like, um, uh, you know, th th there's no, uh, or very rarely a company that comes fully formed. They often need help to augment their skills. And uh, we, we know that our ability to, um, to help them find great talent and evaluate great talent and recruit great talent could be transformative to the company. Things like, you know, helping uh, Larry and Sergey at Google uh, uh, bring on Eric Schmidt. Um, that was a transformative thing that happened. So we know the power of um, recruiting to small companies and therefore we've brought that skill set in-house. And it's not just finding your CEO. We even have programs where we'll help you find interns. Uh, we go out, uh, we have this program, program called the KP Fellows where we will go out and recruit interns from leading uh, universities around the country to help you start nurturing, developing a pipeline relationship with schools and with young talent from those schools. And it's something that startups often, oh, I, can't, I can't invest in university recruiting, I can't travel out there, it's just too hard. Well then, that's, that's true, let us do that for you. Let us like create a program that what we can screen the, the students, we can uh, take the effort to go on campus, we can help bring those students to you and give you a jump start on tapping into that talent pool. So um, company building. And it's not just with recruiting. We do things like business development. We have somebody full-time that uh, helps you find 
great connections at companies and helps you get introduced to um, you know Fortune 500 CEOs. Um, uh, marketing, maybe somebody that can help you think about your uh, your press release, help you get introduced to folks in the media. So all of these aspects of company building, we want to actually productize and help our entrepreneurs with. So second thing, company building, and then the last is. Um, just like we want to bet on missionary and not mercenary entrepreneurs, we really aspire as a firm to be a missionary firm too. Um, that's why we have um, a life science practice. Not only does it deliver phenomenal returns, um, but um, we want our LPs, the people in the investment client, to feel good about the money that they make. Um, I, that's something my partner, Beth Seidenberg, who runs our life science practices, says that I'm just, and it, and it just really makes me feel so proud of work with her every day and that um, she not only generates amazing returns for LPs, but she saves lives along the way. She makes the LPs feel very good about the, the way that their investment is being funded. We invested in sustainability because of that as well. So um, we want to be a, a missionary firm too. So um, those are just three things to take away. Um, long-term investors that can be very uh, helpful as you build out your company and that just the same way that you are a missionary entrepreneur, we want to be a missionary firm. And how can the Ivy audience support you uh, personally in your endeavors? Well, if whoever you are out there, you got a great uh, idea for a company, uh, you're thinking the timing is right, um, and uh, you're interested in, in working with an investor that's going to be long-term with you, I would, I would love to be introduced to you. We are, uh, again, a relationship business, and it's a lot about meeting people. Um, and our best deals, our really, truly our best deals, always come from people that we know. Um, so and people that they know, and it's really from the network. That's how we find the best investment opportunities. So I'm just very excited to be introduced to the Ivy Network and hopefully can continue to grow and get to know all the uh, Ivy members. Absolutely, this was an amazing and valuable conversation. Excited to do many more things together in the future. Looking forward to our workshops together. So thank you, Eric, for being with us today and see you again very soon. My pleasure, thanks again. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the Grad School for Life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.